You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you'd turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 5 through 11 today. And Lessons in Unity number 3 is where we are in this short little series out of Philippians 2, the Sort of the subtitle for today's message is this, this, that it's the example of Jesus. That as we talk about and as we discuss and read and learn more about what it means to uh, have a life that is modeled after Jesus' life, we recognize that humility is a big, big portion of that in our lives or should be a big, big portion of that in our lives. And this really is such an uplifting and, and yet simultaneously challenging section of of chapter 2 here in Philippians. It's uplifting because as we see in just a moment, Paul makes a promise to us through Scripture that, that we, we should have a mind, an attitude of Christ, and he was going to tell us in Scripture in just a moment we read it, that it's ours, that it is ours in Christ, that we possess that through our uni- unity with him. So it's uplifting in that sense, but then it becomes very challenging because if we believe that promise, that promise requires that our lives look like Christ. It it, it requires that we reflect the promise that's made to us, and we are able to do so in a way that others are able to see Jesus in our lives. So look at Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and let's read that, and then we'll come back and walk through it just briefly. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Matthew Henry's commentary on this section, he makes this statement, Christians must be of Christ's mind. We must bear a resemblance to his life if we would have the benefit of his death. And we're going to be remembering his death here in just a few moments as part of our Lord's Supper Sunday. And we're going to be reminded of what he did for us. But this passage helps us to remember that when we remember this, it's not just simply that we're remembering his death, but we're also remembering his life. His entire life was a life of obedience, of humble obedience to the Father towards the goal of going to the cross and becoming that for us which we could not become for ourselves. And so that kind of leads us into our first point and our first understanding today is that we are to have the attitude of Jesus Again, in verse 5, it says, have this mind among yourselves. It's the same word uh, for mind that's used up in verse 2 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. And if you can remember from that, what I said was that word mind really is this word that means attitude or mindset. And so Paul is saying, have this attitude. 
And what was the attitude or what was the mindset of Christ? It was that he humbled himself to come to this earth, to live a life of servitude, to live a life of obedience, to live a life of only looking at and only fixing his eyes on the goal that he and the Father had set along with the Holy Spirit long before this earth was ever created. And it was a goal for redemption of his creation, but it was ultimately a goal that it moved his creation to glorify him, to bring glory to his name. And so we are to have that mindset. We are to have that attitude of Christ. And again, the promise is there, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I've made mention several times now this year in various messages that we must come to an understanding that, yes, we look at the Scriptures, and oftentimes the Scriptures ask us to do more than what we are capable of on our own. But also what the Scriptures say to us is, but you are capable of it, not of your own human fleshly ability, but you are capable of it because of your unified uh, unified spirit with Christ through the Holy Spirit of God. And so we're to have this attitude, we're to have this mindset because we have it in Christ. And there are two really specific key words that I want to look at today. In verse 6, the first one, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That, that word equality and being in the form of God is, is that which points to Jesus' eternal existence. That he was not created and born, but he always was. So he was in the form of God. Form is a word uh, that has to do with essence or the very nature, if you will. It's not just a, a visual representation that we oftentimes think about in form. But he had that equality being the form of God, but he did not grasp it. What does it mean that he did not grasp that? It means uh, that he did not lay hold to that position, to that title, to that authority, to that glory, but he laid it aside in humble obedience to the Father and to the Father's plan. He laid it aside to come to earth. The King James Bible commentary says it this way, He gave up his throne in glory for a cross of shame and suffering. The appointed direction of Jesus' earthly life was not coming in glory, but he will one day. And the, the, the coming direction, the, the direction of Jesus' earthly life was not that he came as, as a reigning king on, a, on the back of a horse ready to defeat his enemies, although that will be one day. It was that he came in humility, as he came in servanthood, he came in the relinquishing of his rights and his positions to serve us, to serve you, to be for you and for me what we could not be for ourselves, to, to make a way to the Father that we could not make for ourselves. And that was the manner in which he came. He had that equality, but he did not grasp that equality. And the second word then being in verse 7, as, he, as Paul continues that thought, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That word emptied. Much has been made of this word. Some translations put it this way, that he made himself of no reputation or that he made himself nothing. But much has been made. Did, did Christ empty himself? In other words, did he cease being God when he came to be 
a human being. The word itself can mean two things. One, to fully empty of our content. Or two, it can mean to make void or to make ineffective that which is within. And here the idea of making void seems to fit. For God does not cease to be God. Jesus did not cease to be God when he came to this earth, but rather he of his own choice, of his own volition, of his own humble obedience to the Father, emptied himself of that, did not grasp that, and did not use all of that nature that, he, that was within. We get, a, we get a very slight picture of this in Mark's gospel in chapter 9, verse 2 and 3. That begins this section known as the transfiguration. After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant intensely white. As no one on earth could bleach them. It, it's that moment that on, in Jesus' earthly life. He gives those three individuals a glory of who he really is, of what he had really laid aside, that he might become a servant, that he might become humble to the Father's word. And so the idea of making void or ineffective seems to fit here for emptied more so than that Jesus relinquished his godliness. He did not cease to be God. He merely made it ineffective for that time on earth. So we ask the question then, well, how did Jesus do miracles then? If he was not God, how did he do miracles? Well, I answer that question with a question. How did the disciples do miracles? They were not God. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know through the book of Acts that there were healings that took place. That there was that one poor soul that fell out the window because the preaching had gone on too long and died and they raised him from the dead. And we can take that and go into a big, long discussion of whether or not we agree that those gifts and miracles ceased with the apostles or whether they continue on today. But what we can't argue against is the fact that they did the work they did by the power of the same Holy Spirit that did the work that Jesus did. That he came as example to let us know that he was not taking on what he had had for all of eternity, but he was coming to serve in a different way. And with these choices there in verse 7, it says that he took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus essentially trades one form for another. And again, form not being a visual representation, but being the essence or the nature he exchanges the, the nature of God himself and takes on the essence, the nature of a servant. And the word servant is best understood as one who surrenders their will or their rights in obedience to someone else. So who did Jesus surrender to? He surrendered to the Father. He surrendered his personal rights, his, his, his personal things that he could have done as God, he surrendered them to the Father. This is not to suggest that Jesus and the Father were at odds with one another. This is not to suggest that the Father was saying to Jesus before the creation of the world, I really need you to do this, and I, I'm, I'm urging you. And they were in complete union. They were in complete agreement to this. And as part of that agreement, Jesus surrendered himself to the Father's will. And he surrendered himself because they had a shared common goal. 
the redemption of mankind to the glory of God. See, we, we often fail to surrender ourselves to one another because we all have different goals. But when we have a common goal, and when we know that those who are within those relationships that we have are all working towards that common goal, it then becomes easy to surrender. In a marriage relationship, when the two spouses have a common goal of what they hope to have as their marriage and as their family and their life and so on and so forth, it becomes easy for those spouses to surrender to one another because they know that surrender is not going to be used against them. And it's the same here. Jesus was able to surrender, to take on the form of a servant because he knew that would not be used against him. That is the attitude of Jesus. And then secondly, we see the accomplishment of Jesus. Look again at verse 8. That after describing this attitude, Paul says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Paul adds that last little phrase there because it's not just that Jesus was obedient to his last breath, but it was how his last breath was taken. His last breath was taken in a death that was normally reserved for the vilest of criminals. It's not that Jesus did his work on the earth and then just passed away silently in his sleep. He became obedient even to the point of a death that was not meant for him. And that humility, that was the accomplishment of Jesus. A servant is primarily judged by their obedience. And Jesus was obedient all the way to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Even a death he did not deserve. Note the the progression of Jesus' life. Note the progression of humility. He left his eternal place of glory. He he did not count equality. He did not grasp that, but he left it. He became like us. He became like a man. He emptied himself of his rights and his power. He took on the role of a servant. He died a criminal's death. And all of that is clothed in and cloaked in and built upon the foundation of humility and humble obedience. We, we could even add a few more to that just from what we know about Jesus, right? We could say things like, very few welcomed his birth. This king, this Messiah, this savior of the world, very few welcomed his birth. As an adult, his own family, his, his hometown rejected him. Those who were closest to him wanted nothing to do with him for a time period of his life. His closest disciples betrayed him. That's the the beauty of Christ's humility. Is that he could have at any point in time, in any turn, decided, I'm done. (laughs) I'm done. I'm going to go back and grasp. The essence of who I am, I'm going to go back and and grasp my my kingly throne. I'm going to grasp my authority. I'm 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 going to do these things. And and he even alludes to that in places in Scripture. In Matthew 26, he's talking with, um, let me get to that real quick, sorry. They're in the the garden. They're in the the garden and they're coming to arrest them. And they begin to seize him. And it says in actually in Matthew 26, beginning 
in verse 50. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And they came and they laid hands on him and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword out and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? It's a place in the scriptures where Jesus says, do you not understand that this is a voluntary act of, some, of servant humility? That at any point I can call quits to this. He tells Pilate when Pilate talks of his authority over him in John's gospel. He says, you would have no authority, Pilate, except for that which has been given to you. Because it was an act of servant humility that Christ was involved in. And in all that, he never deviated from the goals set before him. He never deviated from the goal of the redemption of sinful man. He never deviated from the goal of the glory of the Father. And in doing so, he gives us that example. Peter states this perfectly for us in 1 Peter 2. He's writing about submission to authority. He's writing about submission to human institutions and, and in their day, emperors and governors. And he's writing about servants being subject to masters. And he says this as he writes about all that in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Let me say that again. Christ also suffered for you, <clears throat> leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. <clears throat> when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued trusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. In his body on the tree, <clears throat> that we might die to sin <clears throat> and live to righteousness. Example. His example, his mindset, his attitude that we have in him, his accomplishment of being humbly obedient even to the point of death. And Paul wraps all of this up with a beautiful hymn. They think that most all of this section really was an early church hymn but specifically 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we often take that passage and we often attribute it to end times things. And we say things like this, See, everybody's going to bow. Everybody's going to confess, and there's certainly an application to be made here of that truth. There will be a day that the Savior returns, <clears throat> and those who mocked, and those who ridiculed, and those who said he wasn't for them, and those who said it was stupid, and I'm going to pause for just a second here. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
my apologies. Something's closing up on me. There'll there'll be a moment that'll happen. But understand, in Paul's context here, he's not pointing to an end time. Look look again at what it says, beginning in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. At the name of Jesus every tongue confess. In other words, Paul's writing this in a very present day setting to the church at Philippi and by way of application a very present day setting to us to say this is not about one day bowing and confessing this is about now this is about now looking at the example of Christ and following the example of Christ and ultimately having that be something that leads us to bow and confess before him to bend the knee is submission that we are submitting ourselves to him and to his path and to his goal and to his kingdom. And to do so because he is Lord. To have Jesus as Savior is to have Jesus as Lord. There is no splitting the two. We do not get saved and get baptized and he's our Savior. And then get to say, well, 20 years from now I'll call him Lord when I've done all my stuff. Biblically, scripturally, truthfully, from the word of God and from the power of the presence of the Spirit, to call him Savior is to call him Lord. And to call him Lord is that we bow before him and we kneel before him and we yield to him in the same obedient humility that he did to the Father. God lifted him up, yes, for the cross. But God lifted him up, yes, also because of his humble obedience for the entirety of his life. The pathway to the kingdom is not built upon pride and personal rights and pompous arrogance. The pathway to the kingdom is built upon humble obedience. And as we remember his death today, we are also remembering his life. As we take the elements today, what we are saying is we trust in that death, but we also trust in that example of that life. That we would follow his example. That we would leave behind the chest-thumping, self-centered, self-absorbed world of our day, and we would embrace and exhibit the full humility of Jesus and that we would do so in a way that brings glory to him I'm going to ask you to think about these two things as we get ready to take the Lord's Supper the praise team can come on up we're reflecting not only on the death but we're reflecting on the life of Jesus and I would ask you to consider these two questions one Where do we need humble obedience? In my life, in your life, in our lives collectively as a a body of Christ, where do we need humble obedience? Where do we need to say that we are going to be willing to not grasp at things that maybe we think are owed us, but instead that we are going to empty ourselves so that we may be in humble obedience to one another, to Christ, to God the Father, to the Holy Spirit, for a purpose and a goal and then secondly in our more interpersonal relationships where can we make ourselves nothing 
in order to make someone else everything. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation so that he might make you everything. That he might live a life whereby you are exalted in him. To where you, as Paul would write in another letter in the New Testament, are seated in the heavenlies with him. Right now, those of you who are in Christ. You already have the deed. You already have the possession. It's yours in Jesus. And to make much of you, he made very little of himself. Where do we need humble obedience? Where can we make ourselves nothing in order to make others everything? Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.